choir leaders. Thank, where'd you guys go? Thank you. <laughs> choir, thank you. I, I don't know if you realized how good you sounded this morning, choir, but you were on. And thank you. Uh, I'm Len. Last we talked about it, my title was still Ordinary Schmo in Residence. I, some would consider it missionary in residence, and I'm just oh so excited as missionary in residence to be given yet another gadget to try to figure out. So this will be an adventure for everyone. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, please speak in a way we can hear you. And I'm the one in the place with my mouth open for the next little while. But I have nothing of any worth for anyone to hear. So Holy Spirit, open my mouth and bring the truth through me. May I be little more than a mailman bringing the eternal truth in a way that these folks will hear, will understand, will be compelled, and will be transformed by. By your grace, God. Amen. Yeah, so we'll see how this goes. I'm trusting this to reach all the way to there which is ironic because this whole lesson is on trust, faith, and hope. And I'm going to start by asking what may seem like a simple question, and it's a question I've asked people in and from churches and Bible studies from northern Canada down to the equator. And the question is, are we saved by faith? Folks are afraid to answer. It's a trick question from the Canadian. Never trust Canadians. Honestly, I believe the correct response is no. And I realize that blunt of an answer could get me in a lot of trouble. And I wouldn't want that to be the last thing you hear from me. And I have this fear of dropping dead of a heart attack and... Let me try to explain. See, I believe, whether we realize it or not, everyone has faith. And many of us have faith in many things. Even an atheist scientist has faith. He or she just calls it theory. And we show faith in different ways, to different degrees, at different times. I drink from the water fountain here every Sunday. I have faith in the city of La Habra to keep its water safe. Got in a truck, drove here without inspecting the brakes or the steering mechanism this morning. The truck got me home safely last night. I had faith. Nothing changed while we were sleeping. Uh, sat in a chair in the back there without checking the screws or the welding points holding it all together. 
I didn't worry that Joe and the music team would break into a Black Sabbath or a Lil Wayne medley while we're here. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those kinds of faith. Some of you are going, okay, Joe and the music team doing Lil Wayne. Going to have to sort of hang there for a while. And some of you are going, who? <laughs> don't Google it. You don't need to. Trust me. But the question, again, are we saved by faith? And in case you forgot, my answer to that is no. Now, imagine being up in Big Bear. Imagine you're with two other people. One of them is this professor of botany with a double Ph.D., and the other is one of his grad students. And this prof, he's kind of arrogant, and, and one way he shows that is by pointing out something about every weed, every plant, every bush, every tree. Now, imagine you turn a corner on a trail, and when you get about 50 feet farther, you realize it's leading to this massive cliff with nothing but a straight drop about 1,000 feet down. So you turn around, and you start heading back the same way, and just as you do, he starts walking down the path towards you, and it's clear that he is very mean and very unhappy. So this arrogant botany professor looks down the cliff, and he notices three plants growing a few feet down from the ledge, and he quickly concludes, your only hope is to jump down and for each of you to grab one of those plants and to hold on until the bear loses interest, and then you can kind of pull yourself back up onto the trail. This arrogant professor quickly explains differences between the plants, because that's the kind of guy he is. And he says, the one on the right has this really unique root system that can go deep into the hardest soil. And he says, mountain climbers use that plant as an anchor for their ropes or their hammocks. And he says, you could swing on a plant like that for hours. And he says, like the middle plant is similar. It's just not quite as big as the one on the right, but it could easily hold a 300-pound person. And then he explains, the one on the left is this weak little weed with very shallow roots and very flimsy leaves. And then to underline his arrogance, he leaps for the big plant on the right. And he grabs on firmly, but the instant he does, it rips out of the cliff, and he plunges a thousand feet to the bottom. His grad student's eyes get really big, and he looks at you, and he looks at the plant in the middle, and he takes a quick glance at the bear coming up the trail, now just 25 feet away. And he pushes you to the side, and he jumps down to the middle plant, and as his hands grip it, he closes his eyes tightly, and with his body fully stretched, he breathes this huge sigh of relief, because the plant holds. But just as he draws in a breath, the plant's roots rip out, and he plunges down. And now you're really freaking out. Because the bear is only 10 feet away, and all that is left is that puny little weed. 
But in an instant, you make your choice. You don't want to be a bear's breakfast. So despite your lack of faith in that little dandelion-looking thing, you fling yourself down to it. And it is just barely big enough to get both hands wrapped around, but you manage to. And to your amazement, it doesn't budge. And it takes quite a while for you to slow your breathing down from panic mode. And as you do, you notice the grizzlies going down another path, kind of down to where the prof and the grad grad student landed. (laughs) And once you're convinced the bear is far enough away, you pull yourself back up to the path and you get out of there as fast as you can. Who had the most faith? It's not a trick question. The professor. Who had the least faith? (laughs) Did the amount of faith make a difference? What made the difference? The object of the faith. So back to my original question. Or not? Whoop. Are we saved by faith? This new Sunday morning study that was mentioned, it's being launched at the triad of Redemption Hill churches. It's titled Hope in a Hostile World. As Pastor Robert pointed out at a meeting where we began to sketch out the series, it's all about where you place your hope. pastor by the name of Tim Keller said something similar. He said, it's not the quality of my faith, but the object of my faith that holds me up. The series, Hope in a Hostile World, will be about where a man known simply as Peter came to place his faith. And a letter he wrote to try to encourage a group of people a lot like this one to anchor there, to anchor our hope in exactly the same faith. So my question for you is, where is your hope? And this morning, I have this privilege, and I don't take it lightly, I'm doing a little word sketch of this guy named Peter. I'm going to try to use words to give a little picture of who he was and why we should even consider what he had to say about ultimate hope. And Peter is one of my favorite characters from the Bible and from history because the Bible has Peter questioning The Bible has Peter misunderstanding. The Bible has Peter bluntly challenging Jesus more than anyone did. And you can see Peter openly messing up more than anyone. The Bible has Jesus speaking directly to Peter more than to anyone else. Sometimes Jesus' words to Peter were really tender, and sometimes they were really tough. The Bible shows more people going to Peter 
than to any of Jesus' other original 11 disciples. Whenever anyone is mentioned in the Bible with Peter, his name always appears first, which in that culture typically meant there was something special about the person mentioned first. I believe all that combines to mean there are some things we can learn through Peter we won't learn through anyone else. And there are so many places I could start a sketch of him. Chose a time when Jesus interrupted the evening that launched what we just celebrated. Very intense, very intimate evening with his first 12 followers. He interrupted that time to give them a harsh warning. And he did it in part by singling Peter out. Apparently, Jesus really wanted to catch Peter's attention and to catch all of their attentions because he used Peter's formal Jewish name and he said it twice, which in that culture was kind of like your mom calling you out the kitchen window using your first, middle, and last name. Leonard Lyle Kinzel. Yeah, right? <laughs> Oops. You know what's coming will not be good. In this case, it was, please, thank you, Simon. Simon. Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Satan demanded to have you. Now, we could end up on a long side path about Satan and the implications of that statement, but we'll leave that for another time. Let me just mention, I believe it subtly illustrates, no matter how intensely he may want something, Satan has to go through God to get it, especially if the it is one or any of God's children. And today, we're focusing on one of those children, one that Satan demanded to sift like wheat. And that is kind of what it would have looked like back then, the phrase, sift you like wheat, came from a very common image. And, and, and that statement would have made almost anyone kind of cringe back then. The word for sift also meant squeeze, like you would squeeze through a strainer or, or, or to shake something particularly hard, kind of like you would with a sieve. And figuratively, it, it meant to test someone's faith, but to the breaking point. And the way Jesus used the word meant that Satan wanted to keep on sifting, shaking, straining, squeezing Peter and the others. Satan apparently thought that would crush their hope in Jesus, would <laughs> to smash their faith in him. And once the Holy Spirit moved into them a little later in the story, all that sifting actually made their faith stronger than ever. Now, all of them except Judas. Now, 
Jesus said Satan had asked to sift all of them. And then he turned his attention to Peter. And he told Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Notice Jesus didn't pray Peter would be spared the sifting, the squeezing. Show of hands. You ever feel like you're being sifted? Squeezed? Yeah, if nothing else, you're in good company. I'm intrigued by what Jesus did pray. <laughs> the word for fail had this permanent sense to it. It meant to end forever or to disappear completely. So Jesus told Peter, I prayed that your faith in me will not disappear forever. So implied in that was a prediction. Your faith in me is going to fade for a little while. And the warning gets heavier if you look at what Jesus went on to say. He said, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, to say when you have turned again makes it clear Jesus was saying Peter was going to turn away. Well, Peter responded by bluntly saying, well, that would never happen. He swore he would die with or for Jesus, and he meant right then. If you know his story, you know there was a lot more sifting to go on in his life before he would actually die for his faith in Jesus. And, you know, I just, I can't imagine the emotion in Jesus' voice or the look on his face as he was speaking to Peter. Because he knew within a few hours before the rooster announced the new day, the sifting would get Peter to deny even knowing him. And not just once, but three times, including once to what would have been about a junior high-age servant girl. Just hours after swearing to Jesus it would never happen, Peter was in the middle of his third denial. And the rooster crowed. And, and try to use your imaginations, folks. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. And, and, and he went out and he wept bitterly. Now, before I get into the emotional agony of that, I want to point out one of my favorite parts of it. And that is, one of the most powerful lessons Peter ever heard came through a rooster. You realize what that means? It means if God wants to get through to someone, there is no limit to how he can do it. 
And we're kidding ourselves if we think we can predict how it's going to happen. But God's use of this common farm animal does not soften the agony of this scene. Luke and Matthew use some really strong, really emotional words to describe Peter's misery as he slipped away from Jesus and and, and slipped into this darkness. And it makes me think about the first time Peter met Jesus. First time Peter met Jesus, he threw himself at Jesus' feet and he pleaded with Jesus, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And two years later, with the sound of a rooster echoing in his mind, Peter faced the reality of his sins in a way he never had before. And I'm convinced that if we don't at least begin to see our sins as they really are, we won't begin to see Jesus as He really is. However, we need to remember we see the story knowing how it turned out. But at that moment, man, Peter... Peter was just in agony. Just in agony over his sins. Have you ever been in agony over your sins? Something you've done. Or something you wish you would have. Peter was in agony and he was weeping and he was walking away from Jesus. He just didn't have a clue what was going on. Have you ever been there? I mean, something's going on, and you're just like, this is ridiculous. God, what are you doing? Or maybe that's just me. Now, I should say it looked like Peter was walking away from Jesus. Because in God's design, the path that Peter was on and the path that Peter was walking was going to actually lead him to Jesus in a way Peter never could have dreamed. But meanwhile, man, I believe Satan was laughing hysterically And I suspect his warriors were like high-fiving one another as they watched Peter. I mean, that was likely one of the best nights ever for Satan and his soldiers. Before getting to see Peter alone and weeping, they had seen Jesus alone in the Garden of Gethsemane weeping in more anguish than they had ever seen. Later they got to see Jesus arrested and mocked and tortured and crucified. So man, Satan and his team, they would have been just like, (laughs) Woo! Or something like that. And while they were celebrating, man, there's Peter just sobbing. And more importantly than sobbing, moving, 
farther away from Jesus. He wasn't the only one. I mean, Mark reported they all left him and fled. See, this whole scene magnifies the reality that before the crucifixion and the resurrection, nobody really knew who Jesus was or what he was doing. I mean, just look at some of the things the Bible writers observed about the closest followers of Jesus before the crucifixion and before the resurrection. Before the crucifixion and the resurrection, the disciples didn't understand. They didn't know what Jesus was talking about. They were afraid to ask Him about it. But after reports John, Jesus was raised from the dead. His disciples recalled what He had said, and then they believed the Scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. Jesus told them it had to be that way. I mean, He even said they would be better off without Him. And they really couldn't understand that when he said it. As the officials led Jesus away, I suspect Peter couldn't even consider life without Jesus. And the thought of life being better without Jesus must have seemed like this really cruel joke. And I paused for a while on Tuesday, and I tried to think of the kind of life Peter had when Jesus was right there with him. And I thought about the time that that. that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side of the lake and night fell and the boat was a long way from the land and it was being beaten by the waves. And that storm just hammered them for hours before Jesus really freaked them out by walking toward them on the lake. And and Peter said, Peter said, Lord, if it's you, Command me to come to you on the water. <laughs> Apparently, Peter found such comfort when he was with Jesus. When they were apart, he was willing to try anything to get to Jesus. And when Jesus said, Come, Peter threw common sense into that storm and stepped over the side of the boat. And Matthew reported, Peter walked on the water. Now, I've heard a lot of sermons that are pretty hard on Peter and how quickly he wimped out when he focused on the storm, but I don't know of anyone else who actually walked on water, especially in a storm. And do you get a sense of how much Peter wanted to be with Jesus, especially because when he wasn't with Jesus, things just seemed to go wrong. After hours in a dark storm, all Peter wanted was to be with Jesus. Even though all his years of fishing should have taught him one basic fact, people don't walk on water. Apparently that didn't matter, at least not as much as being with Jesus. So whether in those first 
few steps toward Jesus or in the steps back to the boat with Jesus, when Peter was with Jesus, he was able to do some absolutely extraordinary things. And he was also able to say some extraordinary things when he was with Jesus. Like the time Jesus bluntly asked his first 12 disciples who they believed he was. And, and Matthew recorded Peter's answer. He said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, that was likely not the kind of talk that flowed naturally out of a guy like Peter. He probably was not a theologian. He likely wasn't from a home that would have allowed access to the kind of schooling that would teach that way of speaking. I mean, he was a regular blue-collar fisherman. And Jesus made it pretty clear something supernatural was going on. He said, blessed are you. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my Father, who's in heaven. You ever have moments like that? I mean, you open your mouth and, and words come out that are so profound or so wise, you catch yourself looking around to see who said them because you know it couldn't have been you. And then you're kind of blown away when you realize those words actually came out of you. But you know it wasn't you saying them because you're just not that smart. That was the kind of extraordinary thing that happened to Peter when he was with Jesus. Now, I want to take just one more look, a quick look, at one more extraordinary kind of thing that went on with Peter when he was with Jesus. It was just before the scene with Peter's denial. And Judas was fully into betrayal mode and had led the chief priests and hundreds of fully armed soldiers, think SWAT team, to arrest Jesus. Jesus knew they had come for him, but he still asked them who they wanted, and they said Jesus of Nazareth. And I love what happened next. As much as any scene in my Bible, it's, it's just, it's, I, I picture, I love to picture things because they make things come more clear. And if the scene, there we go. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Now that phrase, I am he, was actually I am, which was God's ultimate way of referring to himself. And, and the word fell carried more of a sense of we're thrown down. So we're talking hundreds of fully armed men thrown to the ground by two little words and the reality of what they meant. And remember, there, Peter would have been there, and Peter would have been watching and going through all kinds of emotions from fear about the SWAT team to anger over how they could even think about messing with Jesus to confusion about the way Jesus had been talking about dying. And then Peter saw that whole armed squadron thrown to the ground by Jesus' words. 
And I picture the soldiers, kind of Keystone Cops style, scrambling to their feet to regroup and get back to their feet and get back in position. And Peter's watching him, and he's just getting madder. And finally, he apparently had enough. And even though he had claimed complete faith in Jesus, he had brought a small sword or a big knife. And, and, and it says he drew it and he struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. A number of historians I read say in a lineup of officials like that, the high priest's servant would have simply been the one in front, and that was why Peter hit him. And if Jesus had not stopped him, Peter would have just kept on swinging. And I just picture Peter with this adrenaline rush going on. And I mean, his heart just pounding, and he's just ready to take on anyone. He's ready to take on everyone. Because that was just the kind of courage he found when Jesus was there with him. So he was able to do extraordinary things, and he was able to say extraordinary things, and he found this extraordinary courage when Jesus was there with him. Well, the next time we see Peter was in the scene mentioned earlier, the time of that triple denial. Jesus had been arrested. Jesus was being interrogated by the religious leaders. So physically, they wouldn't have been very far apart, but practically speaking, man, there was a whole world between the two of them. In the face of hundreds of soldiers, Peter was bolder than anyone, as long as Jesus was with him. But moments later, just moments later, when he was alone, Peter couldn't even hold his ground when challenged by that servant girl. And then came the death of Jesus. I mean, what hope would Peter have with Jesus gone? I mean, the answer should be obvious. Absolutely no hope. If not for the promise of what came after the crucifixion and the resurrection. And the promise came in Jesus' last recorded words. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. See, that's what sets authentic Christianity apart from any other religion. That is what sets authentic Christianity apart from any other faith, any other hope in life. All of the others have requirements and obligations of how to live and what to do. Now, Jesus did talk a lot about how we are to live, including some blunt commands. But it's not like Jesus hands us this to-do list and then just kind of sends us on our way to see how we do with it. Remember? He said it would be better for him to go away because that way the Holy Spirit would come into human history like he never had before. And he would do it by coming into believers to live permanently.
tell you a secret? The Holy Spirit is here now. And, and the Holy Spirit, He offers to genuinely make us want to live Jesus' way. And the Holy Spirit offers to teach us what that really is. And the Holy Spirit offers to give us what we need to actually do it. And because He is part of the mysterious, miraculous Trinity, He carries out Jesus' promise to be with us always. And if you keep track in Peter's life, you can see what that looked like lived out. I mean, Acts chapter 2 records how the Holy Spirit came alive in a brand new way in the first 120 followers of Jesus. And we're given a kind of a personal close-up look of what that meant to Peter. Just a couple of weeks after shrinking away in fear and tears, after denying even knowing Jesus, Peter stepped to the front to talk about Jesus to this growing mob of people. And by all human terms, that growing mob of people would not have wanted to hear what Peter had to say. But Peter bluntly and boldly told them what happened to Jesus and who was responsible for his death. And, and this is how he wrapped up his first sermon. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain God has made Him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. And man, things must have turned really quiet when he said that. But for Peter, it was proof of the promise that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Well, Acts chapter 3 opens with Peter and John on their way to the temple when a man crippled since birth was carried in. And when he saw Peter and John, he asked them for money. And Peter said, Peter said, silver or gold... And I don't have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Who says that? To a man crippled since birth. I wonder if Peter was getting used to opening his mouth and having these really weird things come out. And he took him by the right hand. And he raised him up. And immediate, immediate, immediately, <laughs> his feet and his ankles were made strong. And then it goes on to say, he jumped to his feet and he began to walk. So you have this man crippled from birth, 
healed with a word and a touch. And again, this mob came rushing at them, and Peter again thundered at them, you handed Jesus. Nice, calm sermon. You handed Jesus over to be killed. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One. And you asked that a murderer be released. You killed the author of life. Crickets. Crickets. But God raised him from the dead. And then pretty much in mid-sentence, Peter and John were grabbed and thrown in jail. And the next day, the Jewish leaders brought them in for questioning. So think like a congressional hearing. And in front of that congressional hearing-like setting, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Peter, no longer silent, no longer wimpy, when faced with tough questions. He laid out the truth for the rulers and the teachers of the religious law. And as history continued, time and distance grew from when Peter had stood with Jesus. But instead of fading, he grew stronger, he grew bolder. But in spite of that, I find it strangely reassuring that Peter never stopped being human. I mean, I believe the Bible clearly but subtly shows that. Uh, Galatians chapter 2 has the last thing written about Peter in the Bible. And it describes a time he messed up again. The last thing recorded about Peter in the Bible has him messing up. He'd been favoring Jewish believers and ignoring the Gentiles, and Paul kind of publicly scolded him for it. I find great relief in that. I know some people find discouragement. Well, Peter can't even make it. What hope do I have? I, I read that and I go, yes. And in the end, Peter was executed for not staying silent about his faith in Jesus. And many historians say before he was crucified, Peter insisted on being hung upside down. He said he wasn't worthy to die the same way Jesus did. So he did die for Jesus, just not the way he had so emotionally said he would the night of the Last Supper. Man, this guy, this Peter, he knew what it was to make mistakes. Peter knew what it was, <laughs> what it was to make huge mistakes. Peter had plenty of questions. Peter had plenty of questions. Peter knew what it meant to be sifted. Peter knew what it was like to cave into pressure. Peter knew what it was like to turn away from Jesus. He also came to know what it was like to turn back to Jesus. So in the weeks ahead, 
May the Holy Spirit teach and remind us what God has for us to learn through Peter. And Father, thank you for so tenderly and carefully leaving a story like his for us. Because we know with you as the author, the story is really not about him. The story is ultimately about you. And you use people like Peter throughout history to show us you more clearly. Not because you're arrogant, but because you're loving and you're tender. And somehow you know the best way for us to learn about you is to see the stories you're writing in people all around us. Wow, we have a lot to learn about you from Peter. We have so much to learn about you from Peter. And in learning more about you, we can learn more about your love for us. And that's that beautiful two-way path of learning. The more we learn about you, the more amazed we can become by your love for us. So Holy Spirit, my plea is that you would continue to do what Jesus said you're here to do and you would comfort us, you would teach us, you would remind us the things we really need to know. Thank you.